may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. Is this praise team amazing or what? Give them a hand. We want to recognize our special guest this morning over here on the violin, Tony. What a pleasure. Give her a hand if you would, please. She is another student at Visible Music College. You know, I've taught, been teaching history there for a while, and uh, not this semester, not right now, but just so grateful to have these Visible students helping us here. Uh, Aaron and uh, Chloe, our own, is now going to school at Visible, and so we appreciate Tony coming and helping us on this Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Uh, we have been in the middle of a series out of the book of Nehemiah that particularly deals with the reconstruction of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the Persian king. He becomes a builder who later becomes a governor. Sounds like some of you guys and how, you, how you've changed careers and God leads you through those transitions. Uh, this morning, you know, rather than seeing our little mini depiction, uh, we started out and it was rubble all over the place, the same way the book of Nehemiah describes the condition of the city. And so week by week, we began to see some progress. So today, let's move from Nehemiah, and I want you just to pretend with me this is the opening of the tomb that Jesus got up and walked out of. And so this morning, today, the, the message is all about hope. You have a copy of the message notes there uh, in your hand as you received when you came in. This graphic, Heather did a great job designing for us. Because you can see in the middle of that crack of asphalt, there is life. And how many of you know when something is alive, it can move very heavy, foreboding things? I used to make the trek from North Carolina to Arkansas. We were in Bible school in a local church in North Carolina, and we would come through that edge of the Smoky Mountains. And we were out there about six years, and I remember several times, two or three times a year, we would make the drive home and back. And over those six years, I saw a particular location where there was a little sapling we would stop and there was an overview, a look, and I saw how that little sapling continued to grow and it just began to split the, the crack in the rock, begin to expand further. And you would think something is that weak, but it's alive. And when something has life, it has the ability to change things. Come on, somebody say amen. And so this morning, I am, uh, I believe, preaching from a, um, a fresh perspective of hope and conviction that's had, had to come into my life because there was... Darkness from October 19th was the day that I lost my sweet dawn, love of my life. And uh, I and my family entered a period where it was very bleak. And we are thankful that there are more good days than there are bad. Somebody asked me, you know, how I was, going, how I was doing and what I was expecting to preach for Easter. I said, I'm going to preach hope like I've never preached hope before this Easter. And I'm thankful for the rebirth of a hope in my heart because it has been a difficult season. And somebody said, you know, I don't know that it ever gets better. It just gets more tolerable. You can deal with it. This has radically changed you. It will affect you for the rest of your life. And I, I can deal with that, but I just have to lean into one whose name is Jesus, one who tasted death for every man. And I'm thankful that the, our enemy, the enemy of our soul, Satan, doesn't get the last word. And so today... Hang with me just for a few minutes because I'm going to preach the fire out of what I just said. Satan doesn't get the last word. So the title of the message this morning is called The Hope Revolution. The text is found in Luke chapter 24. And if you'd find one of the screens where you're comfortable reading out loud with me, you remain seated if you would, but let's read out loud together as a congregation. Then the men ask, why are you looking among the dead for someone 
who is alive. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. I have to be honest with you. I was raised on the King James, and I remember growing up and hearing this preached as a young man. I'm thankful for the legacy, the, the heritage of my family, the legacy that my parents and grandparents left. My mother worked full-time job along with my dad, just little poor folks. She was a designer for West Memphis Flower Shop working for Bill Seaton, and she would make sure every year that my younger brother Dewey and I had a new coat for Easter, uh, a couple of times sewing them for us and actually making 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 a coat. I've got a picture of it. It's actually decent looking, you know, and mom was a pretty talented seamstress. And then later had a little bit more of a prosperous season in our lives, and she would put us in a new one every year. And that culture, that's really not anything biblical that does that, but it's just kind of a cultural thing that we grew up in in the Bible Belt South that, you know, a new outfit on Sunday, Easter Sunday, represents kind of taking off the old grave clothes of death and putting on the new grave clothes of life, not grave clothes, but life clothes, that's what I meant to say, putting on new clothes for life that are they're kind of depicted in the, the springtime of the, the death is dying and life is living. And um, this morning, I, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, grandparents and a mom and dad who prayed for me and who actually had a home where they lived it. They weren't perfect, but they were real. And how many of you know real will go a long ways, a whole lot longer than somebody who tries to put on a perfect facade and, you know, is like just poking out all over the place, you know, busting out like a busted can of biscuits, somebody said one time. Um, I'm thankful for real. And telling the truth and being real will set you free. The Bible says, you know, but somebody said one time, well, yeah, but before it makes you free, it might make you miserable. How many of you know truth can make you miserable? I've <laughs> been there too. And so this morning, I am preaching from a place of confident hope, and I'm pre preaching from a place of pain. Because I got up this morning, and the counters were empty. My sweet wife, all the lives of my children, all the days of their lives, from the time they were little bitty until they've been grown, she's always made them an Easter basket. And the counters were empty this morning, and that was my first thought. Uh, you know, it, it ceased to be chocolate candy and plastic eggs, and it began to be a gift card to Abercrombie and & Fitch and Macy's and whatever Drew and Abby were looking for in those days, Gap or something, whatever, this, that, or the other, Old Navy. And for a moment, I, I cried and I said, God, you're going to have to help me. I don't want to make this about me. I don't want to be sad today. Jesus, I want you to be the center of this because if I didn't have you, Lord, I could not live. I could not make it. And I just ask you, oh God, to be the center of what I'm about to say for these next few moments. Bow your heads and your hearts with me, please. God, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you for three critical days 2,000 years ago that have radically changed history forever. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. Thank you for hope that beats in my heart today. Thank you, Lord, that you hold my life, my children's lives. The people in this congregation, those that are listening to this at a future date on the Internet. But God, I personally thank you that you're holding my, my baby in your hands. That Dawn is at peace with you. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection that is in Jesus Christ. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, and everybody said, amen. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. I heard this so much in King James my whole life, it just doesn't even seem to fit right to read it from the New Living Translation because I heard it, why seek ye the living among the dead? 
And the writer here says, why, why, why aren't you coming around looking for somebody that's alive a bunch of, bunch, uh, among a bunch of dead folk? Well, you know, that's what you do when somebody passes and you want to put flowers on the grave and remember them and, and keep the memory of someone's life alive. Now, the, the, the purpose of what these folks were doing, you're about to see in my first point this morning. And before I get to that, I want to make sure that you grab the one thing of this message today that I'm going to weave like a chorus that we sing and repeat throughout this verse. We're going to sing three verses in this, this sermon and we're going, to, we're going to repeat a chorus. We're going, to, we're going to sing the refrain. We're going to reprise it over and over and over again. Here's the one thing. Read it out loud with me. Hope is the space between the way things were and the way they are yet to be. Say it like you mean it. Come on. Hope is the space between the way things were and the way they are yet to be. I'm thankful to God that I'm living in that gap right now between the now and the not yet. That I'm not what I used to be, but I'm thankful that I'm also not what I'm going to be. He is still working on me. My life verses, Philippians 1.6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it. He will finish it. He will perfect it. He will complete it, another translation says. Until the day of his revealing, God doesn't have any unfinished projects laying around in the cosmic garage of heaven. He finishes what he starts. Come on, somebody. Help me a little bit. I'm going to preach today. Maybe you've never been in a service where a man acts like I do, but i got to speak from a place of joy and a place of conviction because in the middle of my grief I choose joy and Jesus is my joy hope is the space between the way things were and the way things are yet to be and I want you to see number one point number one the day the revolution began look at the verse of scripture with me please this is St. Luke chapter 24 the Bible says in verse 1, very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Confusing? Mystery? Thieves who've taken the body? But yet when you read down through the rest of the text, and I won't take time to read all of the text this morning, they have an encounter with an angel that tells them he isn't here, he is risen. And I want you to think about this this morning for, from the perspective of a Roman centurion. The Roman Empire was the ruling force at the time when God chose to bring forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, he brought forth his son. I don't think it was a coincidence. I think God had orchestrated it sovereignly in the mind before the world ever began, before he ever spoke light be, and darkness gave up its hold and light began to shine. Caesar was on the throne ruling as a dictator. Not Julius, he'd been assassinated, but it was Augustus who was on the throne. And at the time of Jesus' birth, the Romans had successfully ground their cruel machine of dictatorship and made the circumference of the complete Mediterranean basin. The Roman Empire ruled the known world, had taken over Europe, moved into the Middle East. Let me get my map calibrated in my head because I'm seeing it from my perspective. Let me turn it around. So you're over here on this end from the, from the isthmus, from the, from, the, from the edge of Portugal, 
you come across Spain and France, you've got Great Britain out here, all across this whole region, all the way around the Middle East, today's Turkey, across the coast of northern Africa. The Roman Empire had ground its machine of triumphal victory over the known world. They were taxing and they were ruling. And every rebel who attempted to arise and to overthrow was swiftly moved to the place of the probably the one of the most heinous means of death in history of mankind. You know, we've recently seen a federal judge stay the executions in Arkansas that they were attempting to rush through, but there was no staying an execution on this day in history 2,000 years ago. The day the revolution began was a Good Friday. It was Passover. Faithful Jews were offering lambs as sacrificial offerings to appease the God of heaven. All the meanwhile, they don't realize that the Lamb of God comes trotting the Via Dolorosa. Whatever means or way that was, our historians may argue over it, but we know that historically that he moved down that path through the, through the, through the lane of blood drops and he was ashamed and he was beaten and he was spat upon and cursed and lied upon and mocked and you know the story. I grew up and I, I saw it last night just momentarily. I was thrilled to have my son and his lovely girlfriend, Holly, in from Texas and my, my sweet mother-in-law, Dodgy, I love you. You are a mom to me. You're not like a mom. You are a mom to me. My dear friend, Dr. Jay Lee, and his handsome son, Jordan, sitting here on the row with me, he spoke at Dawn's memorial service momentarily and shared some great insights about their friendship from the time they were in junior high school forward. Jay's been a true, tried and true, proven friend to me now for 35 years, and I'm grateful for your friendship, sir. The Roman Empire had done it by really discounting life in every kind of way. Can you imagine what centurions experienced on a regular basis to go through the daily mundane routine? Now, you know, they're talking about executing a few individuals, and it's been 12 years, I think, since that's taken place. And I'm not going to take time to go political about that. I don't know what side of that you're on. That's not what we're here about today. Jesus Christ died so that we might live. And that's what I'm here to talk about this morning. But, but there, there was not the threat of a stay of an execution during the Roman Empire. When somebody had it pronounced, it was over with. You, you head to a hill, you get nailed to a cross... It is probably the most horrendous type of death to die. Maybe you've never heard it described in this kind of way, but physiologically, actually what takes place is that in the process, the lungs begin to fill from, with fluid, and you in pain have to heave yourself up in order to get a breath. And the longer the person lives and wears out their body, they get to where they literally can't breathe, and they die from drowning in their own body fluids inside their lungs. It's an outrageous, painful, gruesome death. And 2,000 years ago, the day the revolution began, there was a man very different from your everyday thief and robber and thug who died between two thieves. And the Roman centurion who was in charge of that particular execution that day was asked, interviewed, and he was asked the question. Now, this is, I'm just making this story up, so just imagine with me, okay? I'm not talking about a historical, literal interview. Some of you are too literal. You're just going, oh, really? Where did you read that? Just, 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 okay, can, can, can we loosen up a little bit? Is that all right? Yeah. 
Just think with me. This guy had done it so many times. It had become, it had just literally become routine day in, day out, day in, day out. The power of the emperor, the power of the Caesar was absolute. There was no, there was no court that you, to which you could appeal that could overthrow uh, his ruling. And once it's been written across a man's life in his name that he would be crucified, it's over with. And he's, he's headed literally for the last moments of breath. And the, the centurion has seen so many. They've crucified literally tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in conquering every revolution that attempts to start to overthrow them and every rebel that arises with a cause. They've all been snuffed out and stopped. And it just becomes so much of a routine and a daily matter, of course, that when asked the question, you know, how, how do you do this every day? He said, well, every one of these men who, who hang on these crosses, they've been pronounced that they were guilty and they all die. None of them get off and come back. None of them live. He says, as a matter of fact, he said, I've taken literally hundreds of them down myself along with all of my compatriots, my comrades who do this on a regular basis all around the known world in the Roman Empire, regularly crucifying those who are rebellious to the cause of the Caesar. He said, every one of them I've ever put in the grave are still there. He said, every one of them who've ever been crucified have died. They've never, none of them have ever come back to life. And he said, as a matter of fact, what is so tragic is that within a short matter of two or three, five years, they'll all be forgotten and history will never really know the names of any of these people. They will no longer ever have any kind of influence whatsoever. But you know, there's something different about the man in the middle. I don't know what it is, but there's something about his presence. There's something with the way he speaks. There's something the way he prays. Men that are about to die, who, who have lived lives apart from God, all pray. Atheists pray in foxholes. People, when get in trouble, all of a sudden will get real religious. And we've seen so many of them cry out in prayer to their various gods and pagan entities. But there's something different when this man prays. It, it makes the hair stand up on my arms and the back of my neck. And I'm, there's something that makes me uneasy. And you know, I wonder sometimes in all the years and the hundreds upon thousands of these that have been crucified, cursed to die. You know, it's, I, I wonder sometimes if they have not maybe killed some people that should have been exonerated, some people that should have been allowed a second chance, some people that should have been given life. Maybe they've made some mistakes. I wonder maybe if they've made a mistake with this man because there's something so different about this man. That's the day the revolution began on a good Friday when Jesus hung on a cross. And so many times in fundamentalist Bible Belt Christianity, we preach the cross and we leave off the important thing of the resurrection. And I want to tell you, hundreds of thousands of people died on Roman crosses and their lives haven't done a thing to change the world. But what made Jesus different was not just dying on a Roman cross, but that on the third day he got up out of the ground. Come on, somebody. Can you imagine with me for just a moment what the three-day bash in hell was like when they were throwing the victory party and the demons were hooping and hollering and the DJ was playing all the loud, raucous music and they had their drunk going. And all of a sudden the DJ came on and he said, Ladies and gentlemen, I, I, I have to tell you that the corpse has just gotten up and left the tomb. Did you hear what I just said? Come on, we're here to rejoice. Put your hands together today. Now, hell wasn't rejoicing that Sunday morning. A couple of women showed up with spices to prepare the burial of Jesus. 
They didn't embalm in those days. Egyptians did that, and there was a lot of pagan culture that had influenced what they were doing, but they prepared the body in the hope of the resurrection that was to come, and, and, and they knew they would lay that body in a tomb on a, a cooling stone, so to speak, and it would lay there, in, not in, in clothes like they would wear every day, but wrapped in burial garments and strips of linen that had those spices around it, literally hardening like a cocoon. And they walked in, and the handkerchief that had covered the face was folded in another place, the text says, which leads to show me that the head... How do we know we're the body of Christ? He's the head. The head's already folded up his grave clothes. And how many of you know that's the promise that ours are going to be folded up one of these days? Come on, somebody. They go in not to leave flowers, but they go in to prepare the body because they'll let that body lie there for a couple of years until the tissue and the muscles and the sinews and the tendons and the organs and everything finally has decayed away and there's nothing left but the bones. And then they take the bones and they put them into an ossuary because the Old Testament says over and over and over again about faithful kings who slept with the fathers and were gathered to the ancients. When you read that phrase in the Old Testament, it's talking about the period of time when the body would decay, the skin and the organs would just shrivel away. They would be eaten by worms. I don't want to be gross this morning, but literally that's what would happen until there was nothing left but the bones. And then they would gather, they would be gathered to the ancients. The bones of that dead person would be laid with the bones of their ancestors, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, those that were faithful Jews looking for a resurrection that was yet to come. Because that's part of the covenant, the old covenant, as well as the new. And so when you read that phrase, they slept with the fathers and they were gathered to the ancients. It's the picture of lying there waiting for everything to decay and then gathering the bones and putting them away in hope of a day when something would be restored better than it ever was in the first place. So today I want to tell you that there was a revolution that began. It's a, it's a three-day hinge point that turns all of history on it. It's, it's like bookends, the cross on Good Friday and, and the resurrection on, on, on Resurrection Sunday. We call it Easter here in our culture. And, and, and those three days of Friday, Saturday, Sunday have literally changed the rest of the world. And 2,000 years later, we're still celebrating the, the birth and the death and the resurrection of the one who did get up out of the grave and broke the tradition that the Roman centurion said had never happened. It was a revolution that began, and I want to tell you, every tyrant throughout history, demonically inspired, has tried to stop it. But it's amazing that when they make those attempts that, that the church can go underground for a season and then a generation later explode and take over a nation. Futurists tell us that by 2060 that China will be the most populous Christian nation on the planet. There's a very real revival going on that would make us ashamed in America with people who laid their lives down and gathering in underground churches this morning, huddling together, holding one page out of the book of Colossians, reading how God is now Christ in them, the hope of glory. Every day in the continent of South America, there are tens of thousands of people that are experiencing Jesus Christ as a born-again experience, as a Savior who has come and filled them and baptized them with the Holy Spirit and power. The world is shaking and rattling and rolling around us, and we in America literally are blinded momentarily because of all this disgusting political ideology division that we have. The Republicans have demonized even calling them Democrats, and the Democrats are sure that the Republicans are the hordes of hell. And sometimes I wonder if maybe they're not both right. 
whoever's in the White House, God help us. He or she, whenever. Our hope is not built on that. It's going to take the preaching of the unadulterated gospel and a revival that rolls into a reformation that shakes a culture for Jesus Christ. I have a hope on the inside of me this morning that though the, the counter at my house was empty with an Easter basket, I believe, I believe that my sweetheart is in glory in the presence of God because the Bible says when we are absent from the body, we are present from the Lord. And I believe, you know what, this is a little bit sentimental this morning, but forgive me. I believe my dawn said, Michael, I've got the best Easter basket made for you and I'm waiting. <laughs> you, you can't even begin to imagine. <laughs> There's a birth of hope on the inside of me like I have never had before. They will, will not let me quit. Point number two, grab this. Everybody say the birth of a new hope. I remember in the spring of 1980, I was living in Delta Hall at Arkansas State University on the second floor. My Aunt Lucille had given me a new translation of the Bible and I was sitting out on the, the balcony overlooking the little campus of Arkansas State University and I was memorizing the book of 1 Peter. And I remember opening it up and it was like the words jumped off the page at me and forgive me, I'm going to go old school. I'm going to go back and quote King Jimmy to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And something about those old King James words will just preach. They'll preach by themselves. Look at this though, because this is easier to understand. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His, everybody say, great mercy. It's by His grace, great mercy that we have been born again. Here's the most important word in that whole paragraph. Everybody say, because. Look at your neighbor and say, that means why. You remember in the 11th grade when you had, to, you had to diagram all those sentences and you were just cursing your English teacher? Some of you are glad you're not back there in that, aren't you? Well, this little because is the power behind this whole passage. Read it in italics after because. Because God what? Raised Jesus Christ. Everybody say great mercy. Don't pray for justice. None of you want it because if we got justice, we would all be in hell this morning. Justice is getting what you deserve. If I got what I deserved, I would be separated from God eternally. But I'm thankful for God. I'm thankful that God had such great love. And the Bible here says great mercy. How many of you know justice is getting what you deserve? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. How many little crying, praying mamas have gone before judges because their wayward sons had pulled some shenanigan and done something and stood before the judge and said, Judge, I, I just cry to you. I ask you to have mercy on my son. He's a good boy. He, he forgot a little while who he is. And I promise you that if you'll leave him, remand him to my charge, I promise you that he's not going to do this again and I'm going to get him straightened out. How many of you know that some of us have some praying mamas like that and some praying grandmamas and granddads? And usually judges, when they hear that kind of support system in a family, are, are usually prone to granting a little bit of mercy and not so much meeting out the hard line of the legal commandment of justice. Because 
Justice is not what you want. Don't pray for justice. Don't pray for justice on your enemies because if your enemies get justice, that means you get it too. That's why you need to walk in forgiveness because God's forgiven you and if he's forgiven you, you need to forgive everybody else. Come on. Just go ahead and just get up every day and just make the decision and say, God, I know somebody's going to tick me off today. God, I'm going to get in my car and I'm going to drive around the 240 loop. I'm going to have to forgive somebody before this trip's over with. God, let me live, Lord, that I don't lose my life to road rage and somebody gets shot. How many, this is the truth. I mean, I'm, I tell you, I've got a heavy foot, but when I drive around the loop, I, I let everybody in. You need in? Sure. Come on. <laughs> you think I'm kidding you. I am, if I'm lying, I'm dying. I'm telling the truth. I'm sweet to everybody over there. <laughs> everybody say, everybody say, great mercy. Thank God for his mercy that we don't get what we deserve. And it's because we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Get the last line, read it with me. Now we live with great what? Expectation. This is what I want you to see. And that is that the Bible word for hope has nothing to do with our cultural understanding of it. Somebody said to me today, you know, asked me that here the last couple of days, they're baseball fans. They said, you think the Cardinals can, can get the pennant and go to the World Series this year? And I heard somebody say, man, I hope so. How many of you know that understanding of what that person just said about hope is not the Bible understanding of hope? Because God doesn't say, man, I hope when all this is wrapped up that, you know, that everything that I've said would come to pass. God doesn't go, oh, okay, I really hope so. We'll see. The Bible definition of hope, that's the reason I grabbed this translation for those two words right there. Now we live with what? I can't hear you. Now we live with what? Great expectation. You recognize, if it, let me just set this up, because if, if they had this same conversation with the Bible understanding of hope, somebody would say it this way, man, how do you think the cards are going to do? You think they're going to win the World Series? And somebody says, let me tell you, the fix is in. The Cardinals have got this. Yeah, I have hope. That's the Bible definition of hope. Come on, come on. I grew up in church and folks would just stand up on Wednesday night and give their testimony and just say, I'm just hoping and praying that the Lord comes through for me this time. And I want to go sit down, doubt. <laughs> Be quiet, unbelief. How many of you heard that? Man, I'm just hoping and praying. I mean, this just makes you tired hearing it. I just want to go, man, I, I need a drink. Somebody help me here. I'm tired. Your hope is wearing me out. How many of you know God's hope has life in it? God's hope will change your life. God's hope will set you in the right direction. The revolution that began that day, let me tell you, I, I told you about China that's exploding with Christianity. There was, a, there was another guy, and I, I'm going to go historical here for just a second. Um, he was a French Enlightenment writer. His name was Francois-Marie Arouet. Some of you going, who, what did he say? And some of you go, I don't care, just listen. He'll tell us in a minute. <laughs> and most people don't even know who he is unless you're a nerd like I am. And when I tell you who he is, you still probably half of you won't know. His name was Voltaire. That was his nom de plume. That was his writing name, Voltaire. He was a God-hater, a known proclaimed atheist. 
He, he proclaimed during the period of the Enlightenment holding up a Bible saying that within a hundred years this book will cease to exist and people will no longer worship the God that it's written about. The book, the Bible will cease to exist. It will have no more influence because of the Enlightenment in which we're bringing. Now, I just want to say this. The Roman church had set up the atmosphere that produced the Enlightenment because people were knee-jerking the corruption in an evil Roman church that had lost its way from the first generation church that Jesus had established. And Voltaire stood up and he said, this Bible will cease to have any influence. It will no longer exist. People will laugh and scoff at it and they will no longer worship the God which this book is written about. Now let me tell you the sweet irony of history. hundred years later, two hundred years later, do you know who owns Voltaire's residence in France? The International Bible Society. <laughs> do you know what they do? They ship out millions of copies of the Bible to the world so people can worship the God that the book's written about. This book, they wasn't going to have any more influence. The dude who had the nerve to say it. It's like that t-shirt I saw on a kid one day. In front of it said, God is dead, Nietzsche. And I almost wanted to go, hey, young man, come here. But then he passed me, and the back of it said, Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you want to know why? Because God gets the last word. The hordes of hell worked a number on my baby. She got confused, she got depressed, she got paranoid and out of fear. She did a horrible thing. And I've stood in my backyard with my fist raised and said, I hate you for doing this to me. And then I would go, I'm sorry, I forgive you. I know you didn't know what you were doing. And the hordes of hell worked a number and they thought they had the last word. But I'm going to tell you, no matter how dark or how bleak or how hopeless your circumstances are, God's last word on it is, hey, wait, let me show you what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. And because he got up out of the grave, because he rose again, you have a hope. Come on, somebody. Move to the next, next verse. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. I believe that I will see my sweetheart in a new body, not just her and hers, but me and mine, baby. I'm telling you. And I will have a 32-inch waist and a 48-inch chest. <laughs> it's okay, I woke you back up here. Let me finish this message now. <laughs> The certainty of biblical hope is not just, man, I sure hope so. The certainty of biblical hope is God says you have an expectation. It's out there in front of you. The fix is in. The cards are going to win. Jesus has already run the race and won it. it. The fix is in, baby. You are a winner right now. Don't forget who you are. Point number three. Are you getting anything out of this? Hope is the space between the way things were and the way they are yet to be. I'm moving toward it. Romans 8 says, I am saved by hope. 
hope that is not yet seen, but yet I know it. I'm reaching to it by by faith to take hold of it. Jesus Christ has already been raised from the dead, and because He has been raised from the dead, now we have a hope of our future resurrection. Because Jesus died on the cross on a good Friday and got out of the grave three days later, He paid the penalty for my sin on Friday, but He broke the power of my sin on Sunday morning. Come on, somebody, think about this. There's a couple things that took place because when he became the sin bearer, he took sin down into the grave with him and my sin and your sin died with him in the grave. And then he got up out of that grave, didn't bring it with him. He had newness of life and he brought to us not only the freedom from the penalty of the sin on Friday, but now the freedom that comes from having broken the power of sin on Sunday morning. Because death has no more... Man, I about lost my mind this morning when they started singing that song, You Have No Rival, You Have No Equal, Death Could Not Hold You. Come on, somebody, help me a little bit in this place. The hope of our resurrection, let me finish. And through your faith, this is still part of 1 Peter. Through your faith, God is protecting you by His power. Here's the critical word. Everybody say it. Until. Say until. Until is a time word. Until you receive the salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Let's grab it quickly. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead even though you must endure. Greek word there is hupomone. You almost feel like you have to be like at a Greek, like a Greek wedding. Hoopamone. And you almost want to throw your arms around the big fat guy and do a dance and say, Hoopamone. Hoopo means under. It's like a hypo, English hypodermic needle goes under the skin. Hoopo. Mone means to abide. And so when we endure, we abide underneath the weight of the trials. And notice the language here. This is rough. It's many trials, but thank God it's just a little while. Everybody say, many trials, but just a little while. Say, hoopamone. That's endure. You're going to get under it and not quit. You're going to remain. You're not going to check out. You're not going to tap out and say, no mas. But you're going to endure. You're going to hang, you're going to hang in there because his, he's going to strengthen you. Last verse, and here we go. These trials will show. That your faith is genuine and is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Last verse and we're finished. So when your faith, everybody say remains strong. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Put your hands together and give Him praise. My hope will be revealed. God says, I got this until, until you get, I've given you a down payment of your inheritance. It's it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. But I'm telling you, I'm going to hang on to you. I'm not going to let go of you. I'm going to have the last word until you have fully received this salvation that I'm talking about. And it's when this mortal puts on immortality. My Spirit has been saved. My soul is being saved. My body shall be saved. When I look at him and I see him, the Bible says, then we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Justification, a life of sanctification, a moment of glorification. That's the hope that we have. It's the hope that is a sure thing. It's a hope that God says, I have the last word on. 
devil is lying to some people sitting in this congregation this morning. Pastor, how do you know when the devil's lying? Honey, when his lips are moving, he is lying. He's telling you it's hopeless. He's telling you you'll never get out of this situation. You won't break this pattern of addiction. You won't put that marriage back together. You'll never see your dreams come to pass. You'll never straighten out the mess that you've made with your life. But the promise is, is because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, we can now be born again with a living hope, a lively hope, a hope that gives us a great expectation. That kind of hope will change the world. Somebody said you can go about 40 days without food. You can go about three to five days without water. You can exist for three to four minutes, possibly without any air, but you can't live for one second without hope in your heart. This morning, the Bible says in Colossians 1.27 that we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's in us as an expectation of finally resurrecting this mortal body and covering it with immortality. It's not just a home in heaven. I don't know how it happened, but something happened along the way in terms of how we were seeing the goal of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It's somewhere along the way it just got tied up in a bunch of hyper-fundamentalist garbage. And it became the gospel of sin management. And it became, say these words so you don't go to hell. I want to tell you, hell is hot and heaven is real and sin is dark and Jesus saves. I believe that with all of my heart. But I'm going to tell you, the end game for Jesus to come wasn't just to get you out of hell. It was to get you into life and to get heaven into you and for you to become a walking ambassador of heaven on this planet. To bring heaven down to earth. Somewhere along the line, depending on whatever your theology about money was, either it was a great big mansion or it was a cabin in the corner of glory. Gospel music that's not so biblically centered did that to us. And if you really go back to what the root of the words are talking about, it has nothing to do with real estate in a cosmic sense. It's not about a 40-room mansion. First of all, if I have my own and my wife has one and all my kids have it, what are we all going to do with a 40-room mansion? They don't need any bedrooms because you're not going to sleep. I better quit. i got to leave that alone. The focus of the New Testament is not about a house for me. The focus of the New Testament is about a house for God. And you are that house. You're the mansion that God's building. Remember the story you read as a kid? This is the house that Jack built. Well, guess what? I'm looking at the house that God built. You're that house. The Bible says we're His dwelling place. When it's all wrapped up, Revelation 21 says, Behold, all things are new. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's God's purpose. That's His intention. It's to come in and live in your heart and your life, not so you can have eternal life someday. No, eternal life begins right now. Eternal life's not a long time. It's no time at all. You, 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 you begin to live a quality of life that is from another place and you start to live it as a representative right now in the middle. The sweet by and by baby will take care of itself. It's the nasty, low down, dirty, nitty gritty right now and now that I got to deal with. And that's where God wants to bring His presence into your life. Did you get anything out of this this morning? Put your hands together and let's pray. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. God, we come before you and we acknowledge that not a one of us is worthy for you to dwell in us. Our foundations are broken. We're architecturally unsound. We built our lives on sand. 
We need the rock. Jesus, you are that rock. I just want to say to you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, nobody's looking around. There's not a perfect person in this room but one, and his name is Jesus. I've done things I shouldn't. I failed to do things I should have. Jesus Christ is the only one who fulfilled every commandment, both actively and passively in his obedience and everything that he was supposed to do and not supposed to do. He kept every jot and tittle of the law of God. He is the walking embodiment of the nature of God in perfection. And in his, in his beauty, in his impeccability, he loved us so much that he chose to suffer the godly for the ungodly. The just would die for the unjust. That's him dying for us, taking my place, taking your place. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that when he died, he took all of the ordinances and the commandments and every accusation against you and it was nailed to the cross and it was buried with him. And he got up out of the ground with a clean bill going, there is therefore now no condemnation to any of you that are in Christ Jesus. Somebody said, okay, how can I get in Christ? Very simply, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says, you know what? This, this hinge point of history, this story that's bookend with a crucifixion on a Good Friday and a resurrection on an Easter Sunday, that hinge point of history changed the world. And if you believe this story, Romans 10 says, and you believe it in your heart and you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Greek word kurios. It means he's the boss. That was the word used for Caesar. Caesar is kurios. Jesus is Lord. When you make Jesus Christ the boss of your life and say, God, be my Savior. Forgive me my sins. Lead me, guide me. And you give him your heart. The Bible says you shall be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You believe it in your heart. You confess it with your mouth. I want to give you an opportunity right now before we close this service. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. If, if, if you're that person today in the midst of hopelessness, and you would say, you know what? If, if I get out of this mess, it's going to take God to do it. Maybe you've never crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, save me. So today I would invite you to take that step. I believe he's tapping somebody on the shoulder right now, reminding you of how much he loves you. You're sitting there in condemnation and guilt and shame and you're going, my sin is great. And he said, yes, but my love is greater. We sang that this morning. Nobody in the room can earn it or deserve it. Jesus did and he's ready to give it away. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you, would you just lift up your